Welcome to this bonus episode of Europa Felix. Earlier this year, I spoke to Miguel Puerres Maduro about EU law and sports. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's called Can EU Law Save European Football? And it's a conversation about sports, but also about how European integration can strengthen good governance and bring back democratic control to European citizens. Just a few days ago, on the 21st of December, the Court of Justice of the European Union handed down three high-profile rulings about EU law and sports. The three cases are the Super League case, the International Skating Union case, and the Royal Antwerp Football Club case. I called Miguel up to ask if he could give us his take on these three judgments. Miguel, welcome back. Yes, thank you. We're going into extra time. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. An interesting extra time, and it may be a long extra time. Last Thursday, the Court of Justice gave rulings in three major sports cases. Let's start with the one that attracted the most headlines, and that's, of course, the European Super League case. Are you happy with the judgment of the court? Yes, I'm, I'm happy with the ruling of the court. It's a, a balance judgment where the court, again, with respect to sports, let's use this metaphor, kept his eyes on the ball and it was not diverted by side issues and instead focused on what was really important and I think decided it in, in very solid uh, ground. It does not necessarily mean that I agree with all the details of the judgment, but overall I think it's a very good judgment. I would like to take you through a couple of early reactions to the judgment. The lawyers for the Super League immediately characterized the judgment as a massive victory for the Super League. How much of that is true? Did the court open the door for the Super League? It's not true. Uh, and I think the court was very clear, by the way, in the judgment, in saying that the court was not deciding if the Super League should be authorized or even if the Super League is itself lawful with respect to EU law. What the court was deciding on was on the powers uh, that sports organizations, and in this concrete case UEFA, have in authorizing competing sports events and the extent to which the way UEFA has exercised those powers is incompatible with EU law. The case is not a vindication of the Super League. It is a case that is critical of how UEFA has exercised its powers. It's a different thing. So the court framed the powers of UEFA without endorsing the Super League. Yes, exactly. On the other end of the spectrum of reactions to the judgment, you have the reactions of UEFA and FIFA. UEFA issued a statement that said that the ruling was about a pre-existing shortfall that has already been fixed. And the president of FIFA said this ruling doesn't change anything. So UEFA and FIFA seem to shrug the ruling off as irrelevant. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's understandable politically that they try to do that, but it's wrong. <laughs> the case basically recognizes the specificity of sports and that these may lead to certain exceptions to competition rules, to internal market rules, including having at the top sports organizations and recognizing to these organizations uh, a role both in regulating sports, including in the licensing of sports competitions. But at the same time, the ruling is very clear that in order to be acceptable under the law, they need to be subject to very strict requirements, to a framework on the exercise of their powers that 
must include both substantive rules and procedural rules that guarantee that that power is not going to be used in an arbitrary manner to favor the commercial interests, but instead is going to be used generally to pursue the regulatory objectives that authorize those exceptions. And that means that those rules, they must be non-discriminatory, transparent, objective, and subject to independent uh, judicial review. And the court develops these criteria further than it had done in the past, and in a way that, in my view, makes it very difficult to argue that the current rules of UEFA uh, comply with that. But the second aspect that is problematic for UEFA and FIFA, and I think for other sports organizations, with respect to their role as commercial actors, is that the court also makes clear that part of the non-discrimination, if you want, assessment of competing sports events is that they need to look into depth, including into detailed economic data and other, on the extent to which the competing sports events that will be proposed are actually not better than the ones that these sports organizations are currently organizing in terms of the objectives that are being pursued. That is, sports merit, equal opportunities of competition, some balance in the competition, the open character of these competitions, and solidarity and and redistribution. So that's the second challenge, because the court basically doesn't open the door to the Super League, but opens the door to other competitions, so long as they are better than the Champions League in promoting sports merits, Uh, solidarity, and our open competitions. The court says, yes, you can be the ones authorizing competing sports events. Yes, you can have your own sports events, your own sports competitions. But if someone comes up with a better model than your own, then that's it. You have to accept that model instead of your own. And if you don't do it, national courts have to impose that on sports organizations. And I think this is a game changer. That's a nice choice of words. In our previous discussion, we talked about an inherent conflict of interest in sports governance bodies like FIFA. On the one hand, they regulate the sport and are the gatekeeper, authorizing sports events and the participation of players and clubs. But on the other hand, they have commercial interest in the competitions that they themselves organize. And it seems to me that one of the takeaways of the judgment is that When you're a sports governing body, the burden is really on you to demonstrate that you're not conflating these two interests. You have to be able to prove that you didn't take your own commercial interest into account when you're looking at these authorization requests. And, And I think the only way to guarantee that is by segregating those functions, is by having to have an independent body that is not subject to influence from the commercial interests, deciding on the regulatory and licensing dimensions. That's why I said that the initial reaction of UEFA or FIFA, this tangent nothing, because now we have this set of rules that we adopted, that doesn't fly. That, that's, not a, that, that's not going to work. They will need to segregate clearly these functions. If they don't segregate it clearly, then the decision-making procedure cannot be trusted 
to be non-discriminatory, objective, and, tra and transparent. Another important aspect of the ruling has to do with the exclusive commercial rights on sports competitions like the Champions League. And this is, of course, where the money is generated for UEFA. What does the court say about that? And how does it link it to what we previously discussed about the European model of sports and about making sure that there is a fair distribution of the income that is generated by the Champions League? I think there, there's a novelty. The interesting thing in this judgment is that while the court accepts that monopoly of commercial rights, it at the same time makes a very strong link between accepting that and the redistributive function. So that's a monopoly that is accepted to the extent that it serves a redistributive function. I have my doubts that the Champions League currently fully serves that redistribution because normally it's the clubs that are more wealthy and have more success that get more money. And the commission had never valued that aspect very much, but now it has to. Uh, and I don't want you to comment on that. Of course, you <laughs> cannot. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm interested in seeing if this will have consequences. Okay, let's move on to an issue that came up in the International Skating Union case, and that is the Court of Arbitration of Sports. And I want to make a little excursion here to the European Court of Human Rights, because in our previous conversation, you mentioned that the European Court of Human Rights had been quite tolerant of CAS and the arbitration mechanism. But recently, that court has handed out a ruling that's very critical of the CAS arbitration system and also of the lack of oversight by the Swiss courts. This was in the case of Caster Semenya, the Olympic medalist who had been told by World Athletics to take hormone treatments. Could you say something about that case? Yes, maybe, maybe they heard your, our conversation and now I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, definitely the European Court of Human Rights in Semenya took a step further in challenging and in, in basically exposing the problems with the Court of Arbitration of Sports and with the review by the Swiss Supreme Court of the powers of the Court of Arbitration for Sports. And basically what the European Court of Human Rights says in Semenya is both CAS and the Swiss Supreme Court in reviewing CAS in that case did not took sufficiently into account uh, the rights of that athlete and had not undertaken a form of judicial review that will guarantee enough protection of uh, our fundamental rights. Yeah. If we go back now to the Court of Justice in International Skating Union, it also looks at CAS, but it looks at it from a different angle. Maybe just for context. That case was about the powers of the International Skating Union, the ISU, to prohibit professional skaters from participating in skating competitions that could compete with its own events. And the commission had found that the ISU had violated Article 101, competition law, and it said that the CUS system of arbitration reinforced that violation because it made it more difficult to challenge the decision of the ISU. Is that correct? Yes, it's basically, I mean, it's basically an aggravating circumstance in terms of restriction of competition. And that also limited the approach of what the court could review, because moreover, the court was reviewing a, a, a judgment of the general court that in turn was reviewing a decision of the European, of the European Commission. That makes it a little bit hard to draw clear lessons on what the court is saying with respect to the Court of Arbitration for Sports. What the Court of Justice makes clear is that it believes that the way the CAS 
operates at the moment, and then its awards are reviewed by the Swiss Supreme Court, does not guarantee that EU law is effectively taken into account in those awards. And from this, the court seems to draw the consequence that therefore anyone challenging a decision of these sports organizations can do it in a national court. A critical observer might say that this defeats the purpose of the CAS arbitration system. Uh, What if courts everywhere in the EU starts questioning decisions of CAS on grounds of EU law? Doesn't that put a bomb under the whole system of sports arbitration? Some people read the judgment as saying precisely that, as saying that you basically can circumvent the sports arbitration system. On the other hand, the question is left open whether that same role could be performed without totally putting into question the CAS arbitration system. If, for example, a national court could say, well, I will always review the EU law questions in order to guarantee the effective protection granted by EU law, but I will do it only after the CAS decisions. Many national courts have not taken that seriously, and many national courts have basically said, well, there's the CAS arbitration award, First, I wait for the decision. And second, uh, once they decide I don't get into it, I I simply enforce it. The court makes it very clear that at the minimum, uh, they need at the level of the enforcement to uh, go into depth into the review of the EU law questions. All right. There's one more case that came out on the 21st of December, and that's the Royal Antwerp case. That's again a football case, and it's about UEFA's requirement that clubs should have a minimum of eight homegrown players on the squad. And that's to say players that have been trained in the National League. What do you think is the main takeaway from that judgment? I think the crucial aspect, and the court hints at that very strongly, is that the court says, well, yes, it's justified to have restrictions to competition and free movement for the purpose of promoting the training of young players. But the rule in question was a rule that did not reward individual clubs that invested in young players, but instead imposed a minimum numbers of homegrown at the national level. So if a club did not invest at all in young players, did not invest at all in an academy for training players, but had enough money to then go and buy it from another club, so long as it was from the same country, then that was accepted by this rule. And what the court highlights is that then what this rule does is to discriminate on the basis of nationality instead of actually being genuinely supportive of the training of young players. If you want to support young players, then you can have a rule that says that any club needs to play with five players that have been grown at their own academies, at the academies of that club. It's a very good example of the Court of Justice being very pedagogical of, on the one saying, yes, again, we recognize the specificity of sports and that this may justify certain restrictions. But second, you need to be serious, consistent in how these rules actually are appropriate and necessary to the pursuit of these specific uh, interests that we recognize may justify certain restrictions to competition or, or, or free movement.
Okay, that's very clear. So one last question before we go to our respective Christmas celebrations. Do you have higher hopes now that EU law will save European sports? I think that these three judgments were three very important steps in the direction of EU law help to save sports. They clearly recognize the unique, special character of sports, but at the same time make it clear that that special character is only acceptable to the extent to which sports organizations comply with principles of good governance and forms of democratic accountability. Now, the court creates the framework for that. The court empowers national courts to do that. Of course, there are risks of fragmentation once this role is to be played by courts. And this is the lessons that I hope that the political process at the EU level also takes from this. It is that they may realize that in order for the very positive steps that the court has taken to be fully effective, it is important for the regulation of sports to be complemented at the EU level by a public framework that on one hand protects the powers of sports organizations, protects the pyramid model of sports, but at the same time subjects them to certain forms of public supervision, public accountability, public scrutiny. So I hope that ultimately that will be the outcome that will come from these cases. Miguel, thanks so much for taking the time to talk again to me about this topic. Thank you so much for inviting me. I wish you very happy holidays. Happy holidays.